Good morning. The faithful few who woke up early with me this morning. Praise God, we're going to have this worship time together. And before we open God's word, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning, Father. We've given you this time, our devotional time, because we want fully and completely our minds, our hearts, every desire, every energy to be devoted to you. And we're incapable of this, Father, in and of ourselves. And so we ask that as we give you this time in your word, that your spirit would be here to bless us, to encourage us. You know where each person is this morning. Feed us, Father. Give me the grace to rightly divide your word. May it be as manna to our souls this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to begin in Luke 17, if you'll turn there with me. Luke chapter 17. And we're going to read verses 11 through 14. Luke 17, 11 through 14. And it came to pass, as he, Jesus, went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village there, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices, and they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go, show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. So here is Jesus traveling between Samaria and Galilee, and he enters into a certain village there. Now Samaria is the hot seat for Baal worship. Ahab introduced it there. A lot of heathen colonists had had moved in. They saw the place, they saw the people that lived there, they said, hey, you guys live and worship like we do, we'll hang here. So that was Samaria for you. Galilee was where Jesus had been brought up, and a lot of Jews lived there, along with other foreign inhabitants. It was a fairly crowded area where there was religious turmoil. Insurrection had taken place there as well. And it's here in this certain village that Jesus encounters these ten lepers. Now, I know this place between... Samaria and Galilee. I've been there in my life. I look at Samaria and Galilee and I liken it to where I was brought up in Loma Linda and LA. See, I grew up in Loma Linda going to the Loma Linda University Church with hundreds of other worshipers there on Sabbath morning and then Saturday evening heading west into LA, picking up a few Samaritan friends along the way. There we were, my friends and I, stuck, in a way, between the religion we were brought up with and the world. We knew too much to fully throw ourselves into the world, and yet we lacked the fire and passion for really understanding what Seventh-day Adventism was all about. What was our message? What was so special about being a Seventh-day Adventist? It was the place where we were born and the place where we grew up, kind of like 
The children of Israel who were born in the wilderness, they didn't fully know and understand the freedom from the Egyptian bondage that they had been rescued from. And they, so they didn't really have a keen eye, a fervor for the promised land. It was, they were used to it. It was home for them, that wilderness area, born in the wilderness. And here we became comfortable, somewhat successful and complacent, and the spiritual heart got a little sleepy, and that's why we were able to have a good time somewhere between the two. Many Christians are somewhere between Samaria and Galilee, many Adventists, a lot of my Adventist friends, those who I went to school with, are stuck somewhere still between Galilee and Samaria. And that's where many people need to be rescued from. And that's where Jesus meets these men, and that's exactly his agenda, is to rescue these men. And these men have a dreaded disease of leprosy. At that time, it was incurable, and it led to slow death. Now, I read where leprosy is one of those diseases that is very subtle. It occurs slowly. Some of the first symptoms are numbness. You lose a sense of temperature, so they can't sense the extreme cold. They can't sense hot. So they live somewhere in the land of lukewarm. Some of their other symptoms that begin, they lose touch, pain. They can develop ulcers on their skin, but it's relatively painless to them. Then they start losing the sense of deep pressure. Their skin starts changing, and you start seeing white patches on their skin. Then they develop eye damage. They start losing their fingers and their toes. Then there's facial disfigurement, so you can't really recognize them for who they used to be anymore. This kind of begins, it says, on the cooler areas of the body. Isn't that an interesting description of leprosy? Can you see how it would provide an excellent symptom and symbol of sin? Well, leprosy, when it comes to healing leprosy, now leprosy is treatable. It's called Hansen's disease, and it's treatable with antibiotics because what causes leprosy is a bacteria, the mycobacterium leprae. And in Jesus' day, there were no antibiotics, no man-made cures, so Jesus was their only hope. Now, when it comes to healing spiritual leprosy, I think you'd agree with me, the cause has to be addressed as well. Selfishness, the supreme love of self, is our mortal enemy, isn't it? What does it mean to be healed from leprosy? To be saved from the leprosy of sin is therefore to be saved from the leprosy of self. If we are not saved from the latter, we are certainly not saved from the former. Self is the root. So the leprosy of sin in the life, the action of sin, has its root in the leprosy of self, the mycobacterium leprae. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his, I'm going to include a word in there, his self-life. That self-life. Whoever's clinging to that self-life shall lose it. And whoever will lose his self-life for my sake shall find it. So the ten lepers were at that point. They were desperate to be rescued. They wanted to be healed and freed and cleansed. And they realized that it was going to take a power completely out of and beyond themselves for this to be accomplished. So they break out from their world of lepers, probably lived in some leper colony where they fit in, and they stood in their vulnerability out, and they lifted up their voices, and they cried, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. 
Well, the Bible says that the Lord takes pleasure in those who hope in his mercy and that it's according to his mercy that he saves us. So these guys were asking for the right stuff, weren't they? And when Jesus saw them, he healed them instantly. No, oh good, some of you caught that. No, he did not heal them instantly. He said, go, show yourselves unto the priests. Go back to church, go back to your religious leaders. The Bible tells us that there was another leper who Jesus healed instantly. The man came to him and said, Jesus, Master, if it's your will, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, it is my will. And he was, he was cleansed instantly, wasn't he? Why didn't he do that for these ten? Why weren't they healed instantly? That was not what happened. They were told to go. It was the first word Jesus said to them, go. Show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were healed. And that's our title for this time that we have together. They were healed on the way. Now, recently, I'm now moved into officially middle-aged for a few years now. And I have experienced a few different symptoms in my life. And I thought, you know, I really want to get my hormones tested. I see what's going on there. I had some sneaking suspicions. So I did a test, went to the doctor, got some tests done, and won't tell you my whole panel. That's my business. But I found out that I have three times more testosterone than the average woman. Now, I, I, I figured I probably had quite a bit of testosterone just because of who I am, but three times more testosterone. The doctor went, whoa, three times more testosterone. So there I am. When I hear the word go, I... I'm almost constantly living in a state of, on your mark, get set. This is where I live, right? So when someone says, go to me, I'm off. When my son comes to me, he's 17 years old, and he says, mom, will you go and play tennis with me? Yeah, let's go. Will you help us um, play in their school? They play hockey, and they, nobody ever wants to play goalie, and I love playing goalie. So mom, will you play goalie with me? Yeah, let's go. My mom used to tell me at a certain point in my Christian experience that she says, Reese, when, when the Lord says jump, you don't ask how high. Because I've got that, wow, let's go. I'm just right there. So when I hear go, the word go for me has a lot of meaning. That's what Jesus said to them, go. So this is what I hear when Jesus says go. He says go, like go into the highways and the hedges. Go into all the world. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Go home to your friends and tell them what God has done for you. Go into the vineyard. The bridegroom is coming. Go ye out to meet him. Go and bring forth fruit. So this is what I hear. Do you, do you catch what I'm saying? When Jesus says go, there's action, right? He's looking for, for some action, for some impetus. Go. So it amazes me when I started looking at this word in the Bible, who Jesus said go to. The demoniacs. He said, go, go home to your friends and tell them what God has done for you and how much compassion he's had on you. Now, have you thought the demoniacs just a few minutes before were possessed with three to 5,000 demons? They were barely human. To say that they were baby Christians is a total understatement. They probably had tremendous emotional issues and scars and baggage and you name it. But God, Jesus told them to go, to go in that state that they were in. That baby Christian, I was just possessed with three to 5,000 demons, got serious 
sin issues and baggage probably still that I'm dealing with, go. Tell them what God has done for you. And I believe that the promise was for them as well. I will fully heal you on the way as you're going. The other person that amazes me who Jesus said go to was the blind man. You remember this blind man who was sitting and begging and he'd sat and beg at this place all his life. He'd been blind from birth and Jesus spits in the clay and he makes a little mud and he puts it on that blind man's eyes and was he healed instantly? No, Jesus said, what's the word? Go. Go to the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And there wash. Well, have you ever wondered how the blind man got there? He was blind. He'd been sitting and begging all his life. He didn't know where the pool of Siloam was. He had to ask for help. He probably had to stumble and hit a few walls on the way. That's who Jesus said, go to. Go to the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. The man was healed where he was sent. I find a lot of meaning in that too. How about the woman caught in adultery? Jesus said to her, go and sin no more. Well, do you know how incredibly, I want to say almost impossible, but incredibly difficult and painful, excruciatingly painful it is for a woman to disentangle herself from what has been feeding her emotionally, for what has been filling that incredible empty place in her life? Go and sin no more. That was, that was a, a high calling for her. Again, she was still probably very internally torn, but God still sent her. Father who pleaded for the healing for his dying son. This is neat because the healing is now extended to the children. Jesus said, go your way. Your son lives. Again, the man believed the word, went in the way that Jesus told him to go, and the healing was extended then to his family. The same with a woman who was willing to eat the master's crumbs from the table. This healing was extended to her, as Jesus said again, go your way. How about the woman at the well? The woman at the well, what did Jesus say to her? Go, call your husband. Go call your husband. Jesus knew she wasn't married. He knew that she had had five husbands, and the one that she had now was not her husband. But he said, go, face your dysfunction, face your sin, and the promise, I believe, again, was for her. I want to heal that. I'm going to heal that as you go. And of course she was. Look at this man that told me and sent me to tell all of you everything. He's told me everything I ever did and what a blessing salvation came to her and to many in Samaria. In these stories, the going and the healing coincide. Do you see that? Yes? I have met some really beautiful Christians in my life, and when I've met them, they seem so whole, and they seem so like they were sanctified probably the day they were born again, and I've looked at them and I thought, wow, praise God, that is so beautiful. But it doesn't work like that for some of us, does it? For some of us, there's this long, feels like this long, drawn-out process that healing has to take place in our lives. When Jesus told his 12 disciples to go, he sent them out two by two, and he told them 
what not to carry. Now, if you told me I'm going to um, Trinidad in um, the hot season, I would tell you what to take. Make sure you take insect repellent, mosquito repellent, and some sunblock, and warm clothes, sandals. You won't need any sweater. Make sure this is what you take. If you were going to go somewhere cold, someone had been there, they would, tell, they would tell you what to take. That's how we prepare each other. This is what you should take. Jesus tells them what not to take. Do you remember the things he told them not to take? He said, don't take food. Now, ever since my children were really young, when we travel, I always take food. This was the first trip I didn't take food. Thankfully, James had some, and we were stuck in the plane because there was lightning storm as we dropped, and we were starving. Ah, I forgot food. How could I have done that? Thankfully, James had some, and I was a happy camper still then when we finally got off the plane. Food. I always take food when we go on a trip. Don't take any food. Don't take your script. Well, that's one of these things, and I'm pretty reliant upon it. I'm not a preacher. I write my notes, and I, I, God, I study. God's given me something I believe to share. Script is really important. That way you come prepared, isn't it? No script. Then he said, don't take your purse. Well, the purse is where I have my credit card and my lip lip, and I don't go anywhere without those two things. No purse? No. And then he said, don't take an extra pair of shoes. If you told me, if James said, Reese, you can only take one pair of shoes on a trip. I would be dumbfounded. I wouldn't know what in the world to take. My first selection might be my tennis shoes because they're the most comfortable, but I don't wear tennis shoes with dresses. I just don't think that looks good. So let's see, maybe sandals, but what if it rains? I might need boots. What if I need a different color for different outfits? I took here four, four pairs of shoes, you know, flip-flops, sandals, um, Sabbath shoes for brown because I'm wearing brown today, and my tennis shoes because I really want to work out. Okay, so I've got four shoes. No. No shoes, no extra pairs of shoes. Well, shoes to me, I'm, even though I've got three times more testosterone than the average woman, I'm a normal woman, and I like shoes. So, in fact, my family always teases me about shoes, even though I really don't. I keep telling them I don't have that many pairs of shoes, but when I bring a, another pair home, they're just like, oh, my goodness, Mom bought another pair of shoes. Well, if I could afford it, and I didn't think it was frivolous, I'd probably have a pair of shoes to match every outfit because shoes make the outfit look like it's put together right? You look like, wow, that looks really good. The shoes match the outfit. And, and I don't know if you've ever noticed women, when women check other women out, do you know where they look? We might look at the face first, and then immediately we go to the shoes. But a lot of times when a woman walks into a room and there's other women there, do you know how they, they, what the women do? They immediately go like this. Right? Those are the women who are experienced. Some women, they'll actually move their head. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever felt those eyes on you? Have you ever done that? Just on our way here, we're in the airport, and it's early in the morning, and my daughter and I are, um, we're in the airport, and we're waiting in line, and I said, Kara, look at that lady's shoes. They're super cute. Mom, that is so embarrassing. Don't look at other people's shoes. But I do. Shoes are really, I like shoes, and they're important. We gotta have, we gotta look good. We gotta have the right program. We gotta have the right thing to say. We have to have our house clean. We have to have good food if we're gonna feed it to the community. We've got to have it all together before we think that we can go. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't have to have it all together before you go for me. One pair of shoes, 
That's it. That's all you need. Now, when God said that to me through this verse, I found a lot of comfort in it because I don't have it all together. And if anything, ministry reveals even more of that to me. Rubbing elbows with people reveals that even more. Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we like the big evangelistic meetings. We like putting up the big posters and the impersonal flyers, and we just think people are going to come. And that doesn't happen, does it? No. I think that the work's going to be done when we learn how to knock on doors. And I don't mean literally, although I think that's great. But when we start knocking on the doors of people's hearts, and we're close enough to do that. Do you remember what happened to Philip when Philip... Um, met the eunuch, what did the angel say to Philip? Does anyone remember? The angel said, draw near. Draw near. And I think that's what the angels are trying to tell us still today. Draw near. You've got to draw near to the people if you want to in any way affect them. But the problem is, is that when you draw near and people get close to you, they see your imperfections, don't they? They see, you know those mirrors, the mirrors that I pluck my eyebrows, you know, they have one here. I don't have one at home, but here it's like, whoa. Imperfections, right? When you start putting that, well, when people draw close, that's, that's what you're going to see, right? You're, you're, you're you. You're still a sinner saved by grace, a fellow beggar. And unless people know that, if we try to present something different, then they'll be disappointed. We don't have to present ourselves as anything much, anything different. But we see our personality rubs. We have to sacrifice time. We maybe become impatient with maybe the slowness of people's reception of what we're trying to share with them. We start seeing ourselves in a different way. In this work, Evangelism 466, in this work is a constant education. The desire to be a blessing discovers the weakness and inefficiency of the worker. Have you experienced that? This drives the soul to God in prayer. And the Lord Jesus gives light and his Holy Spirit. And they understand that it is Christ who does the melting and the breaking of the hard hearts. It's not my job. It's Christ's work. Even though I see all these imperfections, it is a constant education. Let's move now to Luke 10. We're still in the book of Luke, and we're going to go to Luke 10, verses 3. Verse 3, verses 1. Let's begin verse 1 through 3. After these things, the Lord appointed 70, and he sent them out two two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself would come. And he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth labors into his harvest. Go your ways. And behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. In the way that God sends us, we are going to face wolves. We're going to face danger. There's going to be temptations from without, but there's also going to be temptations from within. We're going to start seeing things within ourselves. But he says, he continues and says, I'm going to provide for you. Wherever you go, the people there will feed you, eat whatever's set before you. I'll provide for you through them through your fellow man. I want you to extend yourself in healing others. I want you to tell them that the kingdom of God has come near to them. And behold, I give you power over that which is out to hurt you, the serpent and the scorpion, and over all the power of the enemy. That was verse 19. Power. 
over the serpent and the scorpion. The same power was a hedge of protection for the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8.5 says, Don't forget that the Lord led the children of Israel through the wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions. I'm sending you in the way of serpents and scorpions. Don't forget, I have power. I will protect you. Don't forget that this was the way he led the children of Israel. This is the way he led the 70, and it's still the way. But praise God, we have the same power. Jesus promised power for us. The power that the children of Israel so desperately needed to utilize is the provision God has made through the plan of redemption for subduing every sinful trait and resisting every temptation, however strong. Praise God, that's the power he has for us. Holy Spirit power over that which is out to hurt us. But that power is given to us as we go. Now, a lot of times we read, the serpent and the scorpion won't hurt us, and we think, my hair won't get ruffled, right? It's going to be easy. Sometimes our, everything that loves ease and convenience in us wants to think that, but that's not what this verse is saying. Nothing is going to hurt our soul. Satan's going to go wham, bam, again and again and again, but nothing will hurt our souls. That is the power promised to us of resisting every temptation, however strong. Luke 17 and 20. And the 70 returned again with joy. They had gone out. They came back. They were excited, just like those young people who were up here who had gone knocking door to door yesterday. They were excited. They returned with joy. And they said, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Wow, that is exciting. Notwithstanding this, verse 20, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you. Don't rejoice about this but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Salvation by the blood of the Lamb. Listen to how the Message Bible shares this same verse. I love it. The great triumph is not in your authority over evil, not because you were able to cast out the demons and they listened to you, but in God's authority over you, his presence with you. Not what you do for God, but what God is doing in you. That is the agenda rejoicing. Because as we go and we're experiencing these things, we will experience God's healing power and presence in our lives. Now, there have been times when this power was removed. Remember in the children of Israel and the snakes came in? Well, listen to this story about Miriam. You know it. Miriam had been set free from Egyptian bondage. She was headed to the promised land. She knew where she'd been. She knew where she was going. But Miriam wasn't fully healed either. Miriam was a spiritual leader in Israel. She was next to the highest level of organization. Her forthrightness and responsibility had been used since she was a girl, right, watching over Moses in the bulrushes. And it was still used. God used these talents. In the affections of heaven, we're told, in the affections of the people, she was second only to Moses and Aaron. The people loved her. She was one of those wow women, you know, that just seemed like she had it all together. She was talented musically, and she had all this responsibility that she did. She was a spiritual leader, high standing. But something happened. Remember Moses, all the complaining of the people, it finally just wore him down. And he was like, Lord, I can't, I can't take this anymore on my own. And so in harmony with his father-in-law's counsel, he... Um, God said, let's appoint 70, and these 70 will help you with 
distributing this whole huge weight of responsibility. So that's what happened. Miriam heard about it, and she felt ousted. Nobody asked her what she thought about this idea. She wasn't involved in this plan. And so she felt that it was that woman. Do you know that women against women is probably one of the biggest curses, huh? Women against women, catty, jealous, mean girls. Starts when they're young. I've seen it even, you know, in, in little middle school girls, women against women. It's very sad. But that's what happened. Miriam looked at Moses' wife, that Ethiopian woman, and felt that now this woman had more influence over Moses than she did. That wasn't right. So Numbers 12 is where we pick this story up. And Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hasn't he also spoken by us? Do you hear? I'm important. Now, God has something to say about this. It says in verse 5, well, let's begin with verse 4. And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses. This was no, God was going to intervene right away. This was worthy of his direct attention. And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam, Come out, you three, unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And the three came out. Verse 5, And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle, and he called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. And he said, Hear now my words, if there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision, and I will speak to him in a dream. But my servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed, and the cloud departed from off the tabernacle, and behold, Miriam became leprous. Bam! Right then and there, she starts seeing it. No slow, subtle occurring. Right there, they see it before their eyes. Miriam becomes leprous. The white patches on her. She sees the symptoms of leprosy. Now, I thought, when I read the New Testament, I thought God was in the business of healing leprosy. Why is he giving, inflicting leprosy in the Old Testament? What's going on? I believe that this leprosy, this external manifestation of a disease, was to Miriam a merciful revelation of that mycobacterium leprae that was living inside of her heart and that was going to destroy her if it didn't get taken care of. So there it is, God in mercy, giving her this visible evidence of what the disease is inside. Leprosy, incurable. One week she was out of the camp, and I think it's because self dies hard. She was given time to think about it, time to develop that self-distrust, sense of her weakness, sense of dependence upon God. That deadly self would destroy her if it was not taken care of. It's either self or the spirit. Those are our two options. That's what Romans, let's go to Romans, Romans chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk, live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Two laws here, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of death. Romans 7.23, just a few verses before, says, but I see another law in my members. This law of death is in my members. And I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. This law of sin and death, it's, almost, it's part of who I am. It's in my members. Okay? And this law, Jesus said that there were principles behind the law. The principle of the law of life in Christ Jesus is the law, is the love of love to God, right? And love to our fellow man. That was the principle behind. What is the principle behind this law that's in my members? This law of sin and destruction. It's the love of self. Okay, so we have these two opposing principles. The love of self and the love of God and fellow man. This was the law in her members. <clears throat> the law of self-serving, in Desire of Ages we're told, the law of self-serving is the law of self-destruction. This incurable disease illustrates to us what the self is doing to us spiritually. Killing it, destroying it. No man can empty himself of self. Have you ever tried? You can't empty yourself of self. It's impossible. It's in my members. And so we have to come to God and ask him to do this work for us. I need the healer out of and beyond myself to heal me of myself, to cure my mycobacterium leprae, take care of the root of the problem. Not just at the beginning of my journey do we say this, but at every advanced step. And it's a process through the Christian experience that deepens and can be accomplished only by the Holy Spirit. The former reign has to be given first. We've got to experience it in preparation for the latter reign. And the Holy Spirit uses life's experiences. He uses experiential revelation to show us the self that it's still alive and well. So experiences come to us in life, and we're told that they bring forth all the evil of our natures. Are you surprised sometimes when you're experiencing something and, wow, that was what I could have done, or that was what I did, or that is what I thought? It surprises sometimes even us. It calls forth all the evil of our natures, and so like Jacob, we either want to just wrestle it and fight it, right? Got to use my testosterone, fight that bad stuff that's within me. Or maybe we despair. Oh, man, I can't believe we become depressed, hide ourselves away. We ignore it or deny that it's there. That doesn't work either. The Holy Spirit's revelation of to the self-life to the believer is a very important aspect of Christian growth. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. And I believe that we can only enter into this experience that Paul had is if we come to understand that for me to live for self is death. For me to live to self is death. I have to turn to Christ. For me to live is Christ. It's a necessary voyage of discovery 
that we need to go on. The believer who is going through struggle, failures, is the Christian who's being carefully and lovingly handled by his Lord in a very personal way. He's being taken through the experience of self-revelation and into death, the only basis upon which to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So Miriam's out of the camp. Self dies hard, but I believe she learned her lesson by God's grace. God didn't just do that incredible, you know, inflicting of leprosy for no reason. He must have known that it would speak to Miriam and that she would come forth self-distrustful and dependent upon her Savior. The carnal nature, though, we've got to understand it's beyond repair. No makeover, no makeup, no redesigning is going to take care of the problem. Even under religious garb, it is still leprosy. And that's what the story of Isaiah shows us in 2 Chronicles 26, verse 19. 2 Chronicles 26 tells us about the story of Isaiah, Isaiah. Isaiah was the king, and the Bible tells us that he had done right in the eyes of the Lord during his reign over Judah as long as he sought the Lord. The Lord made him to prosper. But when he was strong, when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. He went into the temple, and there he overstepped his place. He was king. That was the way that God had for him to bless his people. But Isaiah wasn't content with that way, and so he oversteps that place, and he starts burning incense on the altar of incense. And the high priest sees this and rebukes him. It doesn't belong unto you, Isaiah, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron that are consecrated to burn incense, go out of the sanctuary, for you have transgressed. Isaiah is the king. You're talking that way to me? He is angry. Isaiah is livid. How dare you talk to me that way? And as the anger is just boiling up, we're told in verse 19, the leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. Again, God inflicting or giving leprosy. Again, a revelation of just that mycobacterium leprae that was living inside Isaiah and had been probably for all those years, but the opportunity hadn't been there for him to maybe just see how deep and dark and ugly it was down there. Here was this opportunity, and I pray and hope that Isaiah repented of that as well. You see, the old nature adapts. It will adjust to any situation, religious, worldly, out of Samaria, in Galilee, between the two. The old nature adapts to anywhere. It'll live. It will learn how to thrive, but only death. Only death will do. Trials, difficulties, challenges, temptations, like what Miriam experienced, is how we are pruned and grow, and it means our spiritual expansion, spiritual growth. <clears throat> These things, trials and difficulties, they are designed to nerve us, to determination, to succeed. I like that. We are to use them as God's means to gain decided victories over self instead of allowing them to hinder, oppress, or destroy us. Character will be tested day by day, year by year. We shall conquer self and grow. Hallelujah. This is our allotted task. It doesn't matter what we do for a living. 
where we are, where we live, this is our allotted task. Trials, temptations, opportunities, life's experiences, experiential revelation, it's all going to come to us. And this is our allotted task, to conquer and to grow. But it cannot be accomplished without continual help from Jesus, resolute decision, unwavering purpose, continual watchfulness, and unceasing prayer. God leads his people on step by step. He brings them up to different points calculated to manifest what is in their heart. At every advanced point, the heart is tested and tried a little closer, a little deeper. We're going to root out all of that bacteria. Those who come up to every point and stand every test and overcome, be the price what it may, have heeded the counsel of the true witness, and they will receive the latter rain and thus be fitted for translation. In Exodus, I love this promise. It says, God says, I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field multiply against you. By little and little, I will drive them out before you until you be increased. God is so patient. It's the long-suffering of God that is our salvation. Little by little, he's working with us, wanting to bring healing if we will allow him to. Only one of those lepers came back. Only one was Jesus able to say, you are made whole. The other nine, they could now be reinstated into church. They were reinstated into society, but they didn't get all the healing that Jesus had for them to be made whole. Their minds and their hearts were still somewhere between Samaria and Galilee, and they were okay with that, unfortunately. Psalms 25, verse 12 says, What man is he that fears the Lord? Anybody here want to fear God and live in loyalty and in complete allegiance to him? What man is he that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way. The person who wants to live in fear to God, God's going to teach them in the way as they're going. Psalms 25, 8 says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore will he teach sinners in the way. It's because he's so good to those of us who've experienced life's damage, who feel our weakness, who have been sinned and feel the scars still. God is good to them, and he's going to teach them. He's going to patiently teach them in the way. In the way, Education 264 says, fellowship with Christ in service is the only training that imparts a fitness for participation with him in glory. The only training. Why are we stuck in our seats? I want this training that will impart a fitness for participation with Christ in his glory. And this is my favorite quote in Heavenly Places. It says, in his providence, God places before human beings service that will be as medicine to their diseased minds. Isn't that beautiful? Do you need medicine today for the mycobacterium leprae, for the disease that is in your hearts and minds? It's in the path of service that God has given to you individually. So, my encouragement to you is to go. Feel the testosterone. Go. 
Go in Christ's name. No more excuses, no more fear of failure because we're gonna fail, we're gonna make mistakes, we're gonna see the warts on our nose, other people are gonna see them too. That's not important. The important part is that we go and as we're going, what happened to those lepers is gonna happen to us. What happened to that one leper, I pray, is what's going to happen to us, that you and I will be made whole, that we will be healed on the way the medicine for our leprosy found in service. And then Jesus asks, when I sent you without your purse and your credit card and your lip lip and without extra shoes, and when I sent you without food so that you could have an emergency backup, and when I sent you without your script so that you would know what to say, did you lack anything? Nothing, Lord. We are so excited. You provided everything for us. And when we reach heaven's shores and we look back at how dysfunctional we were, what a mess we were, we will realize, Lord, I didn't lack anything. You healed me on the way. Hallelujah. In Isaiah, it says, for Zion's sake, will I not hold my peace? This is God speaking, okay? For Zion's sake, for your sake, for my people's sake, I'm not going to hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I am not going to rest until the righteousness goes forth as brightness and their salvation as a lamp that burns. And the Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory, and you shall be called by the new name which the mouth of the Lord shall name. See, they're going to see God's authority in our lives. They may see, yeah, I've got all these problems, but they're going to see in connection with that, in proportion, in even greater proportion, God's authority in our lives. And if he can do it for me, I know he can do it for you. Healing on the way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come as a body, but we want to come individually before you as well. We want to come to you as these lepers came, Father, in a full acknowledgement of who we are, that we have this leprosy, and it is deep-seated. It is deadly. It is ugly. And you, by your mercy, have given us experiential revelations to reveal that to us, and we want to say thank you. Because without this sense of need, Father, we would be happy and content to live somewhere between Samaria and Galilee. Father, we don't want to just return to a religious institution. We don't want to just look and act the part. We want to be healed and made whole. And we pray that you would impress upon each of our hearts the service that you have for us, how we can reach out to our fellow man. How can we be of value and assistance to your kingdom and its agenda? And we pray that you would bring healing into our own lives, to our diseased minds. We ask this, Father, for the glory of your name and in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.